Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, so I wrote about this story a while back, and this is something that's always been very interesting to me in that it highlights how when the government tries to regulate behavior that they may think is bad or that might actually be bad, they always make the problem worse. So in California, and I believe in New York and other places like that, there's a lot of places across the country that have implemented bans on certain types of vape products or tobacco products like e-cigarettes, that type of thing. And a lot of them have imposed these bans specifically on flavored nicotine vape products. And the purpose is ostensibly to decrease the number of younger people, like who are minors underage, uh, consuming these products, um, because there has been a jump in that. And, and they say that there have been some issues with some of these companies uh, supposedly marketing to younger individuals. But there was a new study that came out from the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Yale School of Public Health showing that these restrictions are actually doing far more harm than good. I won't go over every single number, but the bottom line is that they found that in counties or in states or in cities that have enacted these types of bans, for every one vape product somebody might buy, they buy 15 additional cigarettes. So if they're not able to get these vape products, they end up smoking even more cigarettes than they did previously. Now, the studies on these vape products, I mean, they're, they're not exactly good for you. That's not the contention that I'm making. But it has been used as a I way to they were stop a health smoking. product. They're not. I'm, I misunderstood that. That's not a source of vitamins. And my recommended daily allowance of vape. Is not, uh, I misunderstood that. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. As it turns out, uh, inhaling most things into your lungs isn't going to do much good. But I mean, there are studies suggesting that it's not as dangerous as actual cigarettes or other types of products. And they have been shown to be effective at helping people stop smoking altogether, together to stop smoking and stop vaping. But when you try to restrict it, when you try to, to use the force of government to tell people that they can't put something into their body, it ends up having worse consequences. In this case, people are smoking more. And if we draw that out to its logical conclusion, that could mean that more people are going to die because of the effects of, of cigarettes. So I kind of just wanted to bring that up and run that by y'all and see and see uh, how, how that hits you. Could you clarify one thing, Jeff? So is it having those folks who are now buying 15 cigarettes? Uh, is that some percentage of the population that's being targeted or the entire population? Because, you know, my thing is, Crack is whack. I don't do, you know, so I've never tried it, never got involved with it. So when the government I'm in charge it, of the branding, everybody. Yeah, exactly. So so when the government banned it, it didn't cause me to go say I need to go buy 15 crack vials or else. <laughs> so yes, I, su I suspect it's the, I suspect it's some portion of the people who are affected by this. Not everybody who's affected by it, but some portion who use it more extremely. And it actually it probably does say prevent some people from using it basically at all or, or far greater lesser rates. But am I getting that wrong? 
So it did say that it affects approximately about 11.2% of American adults who smoke. So this targets smokers, obviously. So not, mm-hmm. not people who don't smoke or don't vape at all. It's people who have have smoked cigarettes, and and, yeah. and that's kind well, of like I'm, a, yeah. I'm thing. saying is there a sub is there a subpopulation there that's really badly affected, and some part of it that so like take two thirds of smokers are two th- I'm saying take um all smokers are two thirds <laughs> of them actually improved by this policy, and a third of them are the ones going to buy fifteen cigarettes, or is it all smokers are just like like you know when we normally talk about guns with you when we put a ban on it suddenly everybody rushes out a hundred percent of gun owners rush out to go grab guns are a hundred percent of very uncomfortable with all of this nuance you're attempting. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you feel a little, uh, little listen, the, the anarchism in Jeff is strong. And so we just have to always <laughs> clarify these studies and facts before we jump in. I mean, it seemed the basic that is premise a fair I, statement. Of, I agree with, but I, I just want to ask a few questions for the audience. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not sure exactly uh, what portion of the smoking population, for lack of a better term, <laughs> it, it affects. <laughs> But uh, what they did is they analyzed retail sales data, and that's right. where they found they came up with the number that they're buying fifteen that like they're selling fifteen more additional cigarettes for every uh, one vape product that they would have sold if the if the ban wasn't in place. Gotcha. Right. So it, it did lead to a, a pretty big increase in cigarette sales. It seems so. Like a lot of it was people who were who were doing vapes because they were smoking before, but they went to vapes, then they banned it. So a lot of them went back to smoking cigarettes. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm way out of my element here because, I mean, in my life, I've smoked like 20 cigarettes total and, a hand, and like five cigars or less. OK, so I'm way outside of my knowledge base here. But it seems like nicotine as a product uh, is what you might call fungible, right? You can get it through this platform or this platform or this platform. And, you know, if you can't get it in cigarettes uh, and you've decided to start getting it through vapes because that's allowed. And then all of a sudden vaping isn't available or the style of vaping that you're you know eager to taste it becomes prohibited to you. Well, you don't want the vape per se. You want the nicotine. And so you go find that in the platform that you used to get it in. I mean, that that just seems like common sense. If you, you know, it's like squishing water around on a map, it's going to go somewhere and the desire hasn't abated. So you prohibit one product. They're just going to go to a different one, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Basically, they find another delivery system for the nicotine, they, which in this case means that they're going back to smoking cigarettes to get their nicotine fix, which since tobacco is so harmful to you, that could prevent a lot of health issues. I think instead of just banning vapes altogether, what they needed to do was go to these vape producers, vape production companies, whatever you want to call them, and figure big out vape. what it is that big makes vape is what you want. Big vape, big vape, and talk to them about what's so harmful about the actual vape. Because I know one of the intended purposes behind banning it is because it's like literally setting your lungs on fire like spontaneously combusting your lungs that's the type of technology that these vapes possess so i think that really been would have been the best place to start is like okay if people are want to vape why don't we make the vape safe (laughs) like let's figure out how to do that Mm. but then we have to get into a conversation about telling a corporation what to do you know how america feels about that they don't like that y'all so Mm. it was easier to just ban it rather than say okay this is clearly something nicotine isn't going anywhere and we Mm. can encourage people not to smoke but that's their own personal decision they're adults people can do whatever they want however these vapes are killing people so let's figure out how to make a non-lethal vape like that should have been what the conversation was yeah well you know what's funny about the history of vapes i don't know if you all are familiar with this but it was meant to kind of ameliorate shame around smoking cigarettes 
um, probably some, you know, somewhere in Silicon Valley. But in addition to that, the initial dosage that you got from pressing the button was smaller um, than what you would get from puffing a cigarette. But to Jeff's point and to your point, well, what or Andrew's point, what do people do? They just pressed it multiple times to get the hit. More and morphine, so, nurse. Thank you. Right, exactly. <laughs> and so um, I, to their credit, I think that the original, what we call them big vape, big vape was actually attempting to reduce the negative consequences of smoking, but they were thwarted by human behavior <laughs> and habits. By the addiction. So I know I, I know your angle on this, Jeff, uh, is, you know, dumb government people trying to implement plans <laughs> and not thinking about the unintended consequences that are pretty obvious in retrospect. But um, let me let me let me play Rakeem here for a second and defend the status quo. Oh, yay. What want to do. All right. Um, <laughs> uh, while being a conservative at the same time, um, we got 50 states. You know, the states are experiment zones and. um Every once in a while, it's good to see somebody do something that backfires on them because we all learn from that. And we recognize that, uh, you know, this is not the way to cut down on tobacco or on nicotine consumption. And uh, so we learn something from their dumbness. We're ahead, aren't we, in our lessons learned? (laughs) I I mean, yeah, I mean, this can be used as an example of of how when the government meddles, it makes things worse. I mean, because there's the, the philosophical aspect, obviously, ideologically, I'm opposed to the government using force to tell you what you can and can't put in your body. But on the other hand, I mean, if for people who aren't receptive to that, there's also the fact that it actually makes the problem worse. If people end up buying more cigarettes and more c- cigarettes are sold and they, they are more harmful than vapes, which still aren't healthy, then I mean, you you created another problem. You've got more unhealthy people that, that are going to be dealing with it going forward. So, I mean, I do think it's a, an example of that, but I think it's an example sh- highlighting why the government shouldn't be in this business in the first place. Yeah. Jeff, I'm not wholly convinced by your study and not because I'm defending the status quo, Andrew, though sometimes the status quo does require, I can't, I can't. It, it requires defending. No, no, I'll take that label. But I remember when in New York City, I was probably a teenager or so, um, Bloomberg or probably Bloomberg, he started to raise the sales tax on yeah. cigarettes. And that the reason I asked the question I started off with is because basically every person in my family smoked, every woman at least, a bunch of the men didn't because they had been athletes in yesteryear and they were protecting their lungs for that eventual draft day. But whatever, most, <laughs> most of the women smoked. So I remember of that group, when that tax went up, there was probably... 20% max of my aunts that were like, baby, before they take the cigarettes away, we got to run to the store and bought as many cigarette containers as they could um, at a lower price. And then they began to resell them <laughs> <laughs> to others. So there was a whole elaborate thing happening here, right? Both capitalism and addiction, as it were. Underground but market they, and all, yeah. Underground market, right? Right. Lucy's is what they called them in New York City. They could be uh, they could they could be purchased yeah. at the subway Lucy's. before. Oh, yeah, you, singles, right? Before you bought it. Yep. Okay. So y'all remember this. But the other 80% or call it two-thirds, they were like, it, the the habit isn't worth it, actually. The signal that the government sent was received, and they were like, of my priorities, these cigarettes are not the top of them. So maybe I get a Lucy. But they were smoking far less than they had been when I was growing up. So I'm convinced, yes, that for a portion of the population, 
it is worse to have government intervene. But I'm not convinced that for the majority of the population, it's worse to have government intervene. Now, that's a complicated question, right? Like, are we driving people, some people off the cliff at a faster rate? And is that worth saving everybody else? But I don't think it's a clean, um, as clean uh, an analysis as perhaps you're providing. Was was there a part of this that had to do with the I'm hung up and I don't know the fact. Is there is there any of this that had to do with the flavors involved? Um, I'm also thinking about like the recommendation. What this week from the Biden administration to get get away from menthol cigarettes and the the kind of the implications of that was was flavoring an element at all of this vape decision? Because that's that's been kind of the argument is that the um, vaping alone might not be so compulsive, but they get these kids with all the Kool-Aid flavors and whatnot. So. So, yeah, that, that was their stated objective. I'll, I'll put that in quotations. Uh, yeah, is to make sure that to, to, to decrease the number of kids who are smoking these or using these products because um, they tend to go for the more flavored varieties. And you know what? I mean, I don't think that company should be able to sell to minors. I, I, I mean, that's one area where I'm, I'm kind of OK with the government doing something. But to me, do something else to curb that problem instead of just doing an outright ban on everybody. Because you don't have that right, and or you shouldn't have that right, and yeah, it, it does make the problem worse. And I know it's a little bit more nuanced than what I'm saying. I hear what you're saying, uh, Rakim, with the people in, in, in your circle, but but in general, if people really want the nicotine, they're going to get it. I mean, even with New York, I mean, you had people getting cigarettes on on the black market. And by the way, when you pass laws like that, you turn more people into criminals. You create worse situations. We all remember entrepreneurs, Eric Garner, right? Entrepreneurs, not criminals. <laughs> but but but. Yeah, but even in the case of Eric Garner, people focus on what the police did to him with, with, with choking him to death. But I'm looking back and thinking, why did they ever have the right to approach him in the first place? Because the law gave them that authority. So when you criminalize more people, you increase those types of interactions or even have other results like people being thrown in cages because they wanted to sell Lucy's on the street. Like, I, I, I can't there's nothing in me that can really justify this. Not even the uh, like the public health consequences, the money we spend and. All of the uh, extra, you know, that we have to the the cost to the public, basically, which I'm also not defending. But that's the argument, right, is Mm -hmm. uh, people smoke. Therefore, businesses have to pay more for insurance because we're having to cover the the class and because Medicaid and Medicare are more expensive because we're covering poor people who smoke and older people who have smoked in the past. I mean, you know, the 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 argument is that because public funding in some ways is so involved in health care coverage. Uh, whether it's ERs or insurance doesn't really matter. Um, the point is the public is paying one way or the other. Therefore, we can regulate this activity because if we regulate it and we win at regulating, then it costs the public less and that's a savings, right? Yeah, that is always the argument. But then my thing is, how far are you willing to go with that? I mean, because there's a lot of activities that are legal, not outlawed by law that can mess up your health and drinking. I mean, if you if you become an alcoholic and you're drinking all the time, that's also going to contribute to public health or or, you know, businesses having to pay more for insurance and things like that. I think there are other ways to possibly mitigate that rather than having the government say, if you sell this product or if you buy it, we're going to lock you up. I think regulation is really the key, just like we've done. I was going to bring up prohibition because, yeah, they were still drinking up a storm and they was concocting stuff in their basement that God knows what was in it. So regulation is really the key because people are still going to smoke. People are still going to vape. And I do hear your point, Jeff. We don't want to. If I saw somebody went to jail for vaping, I would think that that's absurd. So I think that's absurd. At the same time, should we make vapes safer and can we put an age limit on vapes? Yeah, we can do that. I'm of the belief that prohibition gets a worse reputation than it deserves. 
Uh, I think I think, from, I think look, okay, bear with me. Turn some, off of his stuff, some of the stuff that I have read indicates that though prohibition was not a raging success and though it was done away with because it was so wildly unpopular, it did, in fact, cut down on alcohol consumption. It did, in fact, cut down on the health consequences and drunk husbands, which were basically the reason the women pushed right. for prohibition in the first place. There were fewer of them, fewer, you know, assaults and all this. So I just I just want to stick up for a moment. For prohibition, though I know that's an unpopular view. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it. but I guess it didn't make that big of a difference. I mean, like when they first started it, alcohol consumption dropped to about 30% of what it was before prohibition. But over the next few years, it went right back up to 60 to 70% of its pro prohibition level. And but if it would have continued, I think it would have. Right, that's still even, not 100. Yeah, but, right. But I think if it would have kept going on, I, I think it would have equaled out and well, possibly yeah. even gone, gone more. Okay, and putting aside the bathtub gin that Imani's referencing, right? I get, I get you. <laughs> well, we also owe speakeasies to prohibition, which are definitely my favorite form. Of I do enjoy a good speakeasy. <laughs> it's the greatest, isn't it? Yeah, Jeff. See, been to one yet. You're 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 griping about them regulating vapes, but what you're really forgetting is the smokeasy. Uh, the the coming <laughs> to a neighborhood near you. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna open up my own. Vape. Go to get together and hang out in a you know surreptitious way, and they create a whole new culture based on secret smoking. Secret vaping. Yeah, vape easy. I'm, I'm down with that. Vape easy. But yeah, I mean, th- these are those questions that, that I think we should be asking. I know not everybody's as anti-government as I am, and, and that's fine. But regardless of whether you stand on that, you should be questioning everything that the government does. You might end up agreeing with it. Okay. But at the same time, it's like we take these laws as for granted and that they're just supposed to be there and they actually do something good. But most of what the government does is designed to make it look like they're doing something to solve a problem when in reality, they're not. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This has been a very interesting time in the country. It's very reminiscent of our Iraq war times it's given very much 2001 and there's a lot of tension in the country a level of tension that i haven't seen in nearly decades um and it's very interesting to be a part of this and to be witnessing this and in the midst of all of this we have a presidential election on top of it that is the most chaotic presidential election i've ever seen in my life and with that being said the incumbent president is proposing a hundred that not hundred thousand. I wish a hundred billion dollar proposal to put aid towards Ukraine and towards Israel in the midst of the conflict um, in Palestine. And 
I'm very taken aback by these numbers. And I've also been very taken aback by the United States continued support of Israel now that the casualties and the uh, of the Palestinian civilians has gone up into the 5,000s. We're nearing 6,000 civilian deaths, over 2,000 Palestinian children. Civilian children have been killed. And now we're seeing the idea of enter the West Bank that is supposed to be safe and isn't even ruled by Hamas. Now they are being attacked. And I just want to know, where does the line get drawn? When does the United States if nothing else, if they never want to come out and publicly say they don't support Israel for treaty reasons or for allyship reasons, then when will there be a line that we do not fund war crimes? Because at this point, we are just or not we the Israel um, Defense Force is just attacking Palestinian civilians under the guise of retaliation for their attack, which, of course, they have every right to be upset that they were attacked. But just endlessly aiming and targeting and killing civilians and children is not something that I believe the United States should cosign. And it's not to me that shouldn't be a problematic opinion. But for some reason, it's causing a lot of discourse and not everybody is agreeing on whether the United States should continue to fund this conflict. We can't even call it a war because it's just an outright assault at this point. But I just want to hear y'all's thoughts on where y'all stood on that and how y'all felt when y'all saw the potential of this bill being passed for giving them all this aid. So it seems like there's um there's kind of two different questions here. You know, one is the size of the aid package, which is enormous uh you know i live in florida as y'all know uh, our annual budget in florida is 109 billion yeah. so we're talking about the entire annual budget of the third largest state in the nation being given in combined you know military slash foreign aid to two countries and, and look in ukraine i i agree with uh what the administration is doing i agree with the idea that you know we can degrade one of our primary adversaries in russia massively degrade their military without putting our own soldiers at risk uh, I understand that concept. I agree with it. I'm not one of these isolationist uh, Republicans who doesn't see the point of all of this in Israel. Um, it's not quite the same because we're not talking, uh, you know, nobody's involved in a geopolitical war again. Not yet. Anyway, against a main adversary. I mean, Iran certainly is, but they're not on the table right now. Right. So the second question. So I'm I'm it's a different question to me, but I'm somewhat in favor. It's just an enormous amount of money. I mean, that's three aircraft carriers for goodness sakes. And you know, the amount of funding is, is huge for $40 million. Uh, but the other side of it, the issue of uh, the legitimate targets in warfare, I am not convinced uh, to your point Amani, that it's targeting civilians. Uh, instead, I see civilians as the collateral damage around targeting legitimate military targets who intentionally surround themselves in civilians in order to create what they perceive will be a buffer, or if not a buffer, they can at least allege war crimes after the fact. So targets in Syria, targets in the West Bank, targets in Lebanon, and of course, targets in Gaza, to me, look like legitimate military targets. I don't see Israel in the business of deliberately targeting citizens. That's what makes them so different from the terrorists. So I would sort of distinguish the facts on that one at least for me but if i believe if i believe that what israel was doing was deliberately targeting citizens i could not support them in that of course i mean that's that's illegal immoral a violation of every principle of just warfare there is i think the israel government has put the palestinians in an impossible position and i think not just israel's citizens and civilians because again these people have nothing to do with what the military is doing they have nothing to do with the president is doing in their country but Netanyahu's whole thing is if the civilians of Palestine just denounce Hamas, Hamas will stop. And it's just like, 
Hamas has been under a dictatorial rule of that nation for 18 years. They have not had an election in 18 years. Half of the civilians in that in Gaza are under the age of 18, meaning they never had a say in any of this. And I refuse to believe that a military that is so well funded, that has allies of the military top degree of force and strategy and sense isn't purposely doing this. And because of some of the words and just the language that the Israel government has had around the conflict is what is leading me to believe that, yes, are they wanting to aim and get Hamas? Sure. But are they okay if civilians get harmed in that process? I think they're absolutely okay with it. I've heard so many people in the news recently on um, who are part of the Israeli government just saying things like Palestinians are not human beings. I've literally heard so many people saying that they're not humans. It's like, excuse me. (laughs) So it's just using it's minimizing their life. And it reminds me of some of the stuff like we talk about in the BLM movement and just being able to like not see people as people, but seeing them as a mean to an end. And that is what's disgusting to me, because if they want to send I'm not against them, let's say the terrorist attack that happened happened and they decided to fund a uh, special forces on the ground group to go in there and carry out some very strategic military operations to target those who are in Hamas. And maybe it would have took them a little more time to do that. But if they wanted to invest their money in heck, even our money in the United States into going into these air, these regions and targeting specific leadership. There's nothing wrong with that. You're you're retaliating against those who attacked you. However, six thousand bombs have been dropped on Gaza. Six thousand bombs. That's not an accident. That's not strategy to me. That's just we're blowing this thing up and whatever happens, happens. It even shows the carelessness towards the hostages because we don't know where they are. Now some of them are being released, but it's just like we're just bombing this thing to smithereens until they denounce Hamas. It just kind of feels like they were putting setting up a very impossible situation. And I just don't want us to stand by and see this happen. And I understand the hurt. I understand the hurt of a nation that has gone through a terrorist attack. I understand that want to retaliate, that want to seek punishment, but collective punishment is a war crime, period. You know, I think the other thing here, too, I mean, because when it comes to this conflict, there are things that Israel has done to put Palestinians in that situation, but we can't let the uh, let it slide what the Palestinian leadership has done over the years since this whole thing first started. I mean, even when Israel first declared its independence in 1948, Arab nations attacked Israel and Arab nations actually caused the Palestinian refugee crisis. Now, Israel, their government has done something to exacerbate it. But even if you look at Hamas, who rules the Gaza Strip, they're creating a lot of these. They're the ones creating these problems. Now, do I think that Israel is deliberately targeting civilians? No. And if I was even going to give my most cynical take on this. I would say they're not going to target civilians on purpose because they know it's going to make them make them look bad. I mean, that there's a reason why they drop leaflets before they launch attacks telling them to get out. I mean, but there were reports about Hamas saying, no, you guys got to stay. And in a very small area where you've got over two million people, there's absolutely no way to avoid that collateral damage that Andrew was talking about. But even that being said, they did recently create a force that is specifically designed to go after Hamas leaders and assassinate and kill them, kind of like Operation Wrath of God after the bombing in Munich that killed Israeli athletes. Israel knows how to get surgical and take people out individually. The thing is, is that there's a lot of Hamas operatives. There's thousands of them and you can't do it to all of them. So it's just and it's just a really horrible situation. And honestly, I don't. 
really see a, a way out of this. But as far as aid goes, I don't I mean, I don't think we should be sending aid to any country. I think I think there's people here in America that that need that that help first. And plus, especially in Israel's case, they can handle it. I don't think that they really need our aid like that. But again, you get the, the problem of the humanity comes into play, like you said, Amani, like there are people in the Israeli government, not all of them people in the United States dehumanizing the Palestinians. But then you have Hamas doing that same thing to Israel. I mean, I talked to a guy on the ground there last week. I interviewed him. Um, I haven't written the article yet, but he's told me about the situation. He said that a lot of the people that Hamas killed in their initial attack were Israelis who are actually sympathetic to the Palestinian cause. So to me, when I see that, I'm like, it's like I always say, there are various forces that want this fighting to continue, even though it's killing innocent people who just want peace. And that's my whole thing that I'm most so worried about. If you want to kill Hamas, kill them. Like they started, they attacked Israel. So if that's what you want to do, do that. But I just want people to handle it with more care because these numbers are outrageous. And if something doesn't happen, if we don't, I'm glad to hear that they're doing a surgical force. They should have did that to begin with. But if we don't intervene, then I don't want to keep seeing innocent people die. And that's the other thing. I don't want people to keep conflating Hamas with Palestinian civilians. They're not the same thing. They're just completely different. Hamas is a, di- is a dictatorship that took over the Gaza Strip and is ruled like they're literally authoritarian, you know, evil, evil people. Those are not it's a North the- Korea like situation you know. over there. That, yeah. That's basically the situation that they're in. Right. And they, it's they like elected we- Hitler and then they didn't have a chance to elect him. Right. So and basically, literally. And that exactly, Andrew, that's such a good point. And that's really what I want people, especially the United States, when they're deciding to get involved. And that's a whole nother piece of this. U.S., mind your business. We got a housing crisis over here. People can't even afford to live anymore. They just said the average price that American has to make in order to buy a starter home is one hundred and sixteen thousand dollars a year. You got to make six figures a year in the United States now just to get a little starter home. But we got all the money in the world to fund these wars. Why is that? I don't even get Uh, that. Can I can I offer (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the debate point. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, I know, I, I know. Here we go, Amadi and I. We we try to walk walk a similar path, but maybe we diverge on this one. Um, I think I, lo- I love the pro Biden anti Biden like establishment <laughs> anti establishment <laughs> dynamic that we get out of you two. It's always I, I just cool. love it whenever Amadi goes full America first. I mean, right. I'm, I'm Amadi, I know, I know. I was like, oh man. man. All right, here Amadi's we go. Amadi's a Trump supporter now. So weird. Oh, I'm not, y'all. No, I'm not. Jesus. <laughs> So what I was trying to assess up front, which I which I took to be the initial rub, um, it looks like we've donated 75 billion to the Ukraine crisis. And this would be an additional 60 billion. So 135 billion to a far more important global conflict from the perspective of the West than the current Israeli-Palestinian conflict, unless you think that it's a proxy war with Iran, in which case the United States has invested for a series of other reasons. But the thing I wanted to raise, and Andrew was sort of suggesting it, is, and maybe Jeff was as well, perhaps it costs more to wage a surgical war. So, yes, I totally believe there is a a massive national lobby committed to funding Israel, perhaps in disproportionate ways to its needs. I totally believe that. But I want to leave open the possibility that if what you want is the actual targeting of Hamas and defense of civilians, and you don't just want a randomized bombing, 
that it might cost more to secure those things, to create the kinds of technologies necessary. I was reading an article the other day that suggested that now the tanks that Israel has can sort of target in more precise ways than they could the last time they had to go into the Gaza Strip, um, particular military targets. We'll see whether or not that's true, but I suspect that truck costs more than the last truck. And so I don't want us to get caught up so much in the numbers per se, because we should look at the rationalizations behind the numbers is what I would argue. And if, if your argument is, I done looked at that and I can tell you, Rakim is still not, not, then fine. <laughs> um, I just I'm, refuse to believe they don't have enough money. I'm sorry. Like, I just don't, I don't believe that they don't have the money. <laughs> Y'all have it. Oh. <laughs> they just got it. It's no, available. They have it's the a money. fair question like, about, you know, funding and resources. I, I mean, all right, so it, they're not Ukraine is your point. You're like, right. And got, as, as Rakeem said, you know, is this a proxy war? Is, is this really about Iran? Well, uh, I, w- I would say at the moment, um, given two carrier groups and a command and control ship and a Marine three star, uh, I think it's three star that we just put on the ground and, and, you know, air battery defenses that we just mobilized to get over there, um, that they're not anticipating this to simmer down right away. And and at the very least, it's discouragement from any escalation, but it's also preparation in case of escalation. And so if you think escalation is likely or, you know, a broader involvement of foreign adversaries, then. You know, so all of a sudden, 40 billion doesn't start to look so terrible um, in, in terms of that kind of accomplishment, you know, protecting the, the state of Israel. Uh, but, Jeff, you said something that I just think it needs amplification, which is um, Israel would have to be led by blithering idiots to think that it could deliberately target civilians routinely and not suffer the consequences in PR. I mean, look at the hospital bombing, right? The, the, you know, the hospital de- demolition, which. The first thing that came out is the lie Hamas told that it was Israel and it made Israel look so bad because everybody propagated that lie. It cost Biden his two big meetings with the Palestinian Authority and with the Jordanian king, which, you know, they canceled the meetings because of that PR. Well, within a day or two, we learned the truth, which was, no, it was actually Islamic Jihad. No, it was an errant rocket. No, it wasn't 500 people. It was probably a few dozen. You know, all the the whole story came undone. But my point at the time was. You have to you can't believe that Israel targeted a hospital on purpose. They'd be idiots to do that because this is what happens when they do deliberate targeting if if they were to do it. So that idea that that's their modus operandi doesn't doesn't hold water to me because they have to know that the only thing they've really got going for them is the appeal to we're doing it better. We're doing it for noble reasons. We're protecting our people. We're creating a status quo that is safer than the status quo ante, which clearly the status quo ante wasn't safe enough look at the attacks. You know, and I do think that there is something to the idea that this is, is a proxy war. Now I'm going to put on my neocon hat really quickly and then I'm going to take it right back off because it's going to, it's going to give me hot. It's going to mess up your hair. It's going to mess up. Yeah. So it's going to make me break out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to put on my Donald Rumsfeld hat for a second. So Iran is, was very much involved with this attack. They have supported Hamas since its inception. You've got issues with Hezbollah attacking Israel from Lebanon in the north, and there's even issues with that. And Hezbollah has indicated that they are willing to get more involved, especially when Israel does its ground invasion. Iran has said the same thing. It was just released that five of like hundreds of Hamas fighters went to Iran to train with the regime for this specific attack. 
and Hamas and Hezbollah have said that one of the driving forces behind this attack was to disrupt negotiations between Saudi Arabia and Israel, who were currently negotiating to normalize diplomatic relations. And we know what happened with the Abraham Accords. A lot of Arab nations made peace with Israel, opened up. Uh, diplomatic uh, relations. Saudi Arabia was on the way to doing that same thing. Then this attack happens and Saudi Arabia puts the negotiations on hold. So there is a lot of geopolitical stuff going on here. And there is a proxy war going on between Israel, United States, Iran, and, and other forces as well. Now, that being said, I'll take off the neocon hat and say we still shouldn't be funding this stuff. <laughs> Agreed. I, yeah, I, I, my my only point is as we've been talking about now for two weeks, war is hell. There is there is no aspect of this that to me is going to be redeemable from the outset of the terrorist attacks to the reactions. Uh, I think thousands upon thousands of innocent lives are going to be lost. And it's less a defense of the status quo. I think I'm stepping back for a moment just to provide a kind of amoral analysis of what we can expect. And my I think one of the things we may be underappreciated, and this is where I wouldn't call it the neocon hat, but I think it's worth always understanding that to if Israel had done anything that resembled moderation, I think it would have empowered the far right even more in their country. Um, and that is one of the devastating aspects of the uh, the cruelty, really, of Hamas choosing to engage in this to begin with, because as I've been saying for two weeks now, there is no proportionate response. Israel will not engage in a proportionate response to what happened to them. They can't. The current government doesn't want to. <laughs> I mean, but right. even if there are moderating forces in that government, they're not going to be willing um, to act on that sense of moderation because there's no appetite for it. And so we're going to continue to see the devastation of the country and the extent to which the United States participates in it is, again, about our own geopolitical relationship with Israel and our long term investment interests. And to the extent that the Israeli government wants to march forward, we will argue in vain in trying to stop our government from doing so, because there are long term interests that have nothing to do with the Palestinians. Uh, and that is the cold, hard calculus of this really, really horrendous outbreak of um, hostilities in the Middle East. And this is why it's terrible every time, because yeah. we get everybody joins their side. Right. And it becomes just like World War One all over again. It's like, was yeah. the Archduke, was the Archduke <laughs> worth it? And you're like, well, <laughs> you know, everybody, everybody in history class has that moment. It's like, you mean the dude with the funny hat walking down the street got shot and you all decide to kill millions of people? I mean, that mm. is the the perplexity of gold projects. Now I'll be with Jeff for one quick second and I'll stop. This is why the libertarian in me, small as he <laughs> is, is always like, I don't know that I believe in nations and peoples because nations and peoples seem to cause a whole lot of conflict. <laughs> Individuals create very small conflicts. Nations mm-hmm. and peoples. Good God. Yeah. And, and just... it's always the governments of those nations. All that. OK, <laughs> the government. I'm just OK. So let's step back from the foreign policy aspect. And I'm starting to look at the 2024 presidential race. This is the most hottest mess of stuff that could ever be happening on top of an election with the stakes so high. Two severely unpopular people now. 
<laughs> one of them is arguing with every court, every lawyer, every judge, jury in the country. The other one is giving billions of dollars to foreign aid, which is just not popular amongst Americans. Like American citizens just don't want to see all of our money going to other countries when they themselves are suffering each day. So this is a side question. But now I'm just really curious because at this point, I have no idea. How do y'all think this 2024 election about to go? Because it's, hey, Biden, he's ticking down every day, every day. And I just want to see how <laughs> you mean you mean his first term or you refer to something else? His first. Term. <laughs> well, as the uh, as the eternal skeptic on American attention span, um, let's let's not assume much a year and a couple of days out from the election about what any American is going to remember about what's happening now in the Middle East a year from now. I, I just, you know, or even come primary time. I mean, we'll see what, what the status of things is, but, you know, it's hot and it's exciting and it's horrifying now. But Americans forget very quickly everything that happens outside of the borders. And so I'm not, you know, we, we sometimes say that foreign policy is a big deal when it comes to elections. Um, and certainly there's a difference. You know, weirdly, you have. Uh, the sort of isolationist element that Trump brings to the table running against the kind of establishment, you know, most of the Republican Party and most of the Democrats agree about Israel, if not Ukraine. Um, and, and so I, I don't know. I, I don't know if America is going to care about this the way they care about it right now in say, you know, 12 months. You know, I have a feeling, that, I mean, I think you might be right, Andrew, but I think there's a big possibility that you're not right because <laughs> if this stuff starts coming over here, then I think it will still be a, I think, I think it'll be even more of a hotbed and issue. Like uh, just to remind you, since this war started, there have been a terrorist, there's been a terrorist attack in France, Brussels, the UK, and in China. And I mean, if this war, it keeps intensifying and the debate keeps intensifying, I could easily see something like that happening over here, especially, I mean, if people here start reacting harshly towards Jewish or Muslims, uh, Muslim people, like the, the, the little six-year-old boy, and who was a who he's Palestinian American in Illinois, like old guy stabbed him to death mm. because of this conflict. And then th that the attack in Brussels happened in response to that. So to me, if it if it starts coming over here and getting closer and closer, I could see this being a a, a bigger issue. And to kind of Oani's point about this is there are clearly a lot of people in the United States who sympathize with uh, Palestinians uh, aside from Hamas. And if they believe that there is ongoing injustice, as many of them do, by the Israelis against both the West Bank and Gaza, and they believe that the United States is supporting that getting involved and therefore complicit in uh, a massive injustice against an entire people group, it's not a stretch to believe that some small portion of the people you see out protesting on the street are going to take matters in their own hands and engage in you know action here on American soil. That's that's not hard to understand. That's just the law of numbers and, you know, how people exaggerate their reaction to things. So, yeah, I, I agree. It could it could very well become that kind of a problem for us. I hope it doesn't, yeah. obviously. Hope not, I don't yeah. think it I don't think it has to get to that point, though. I recognize the reality of it. It was a political article front page maybe a day or so ago saying that many Arab Americans who had been gung ho for Joe Biden are yes, less so now, given, given the context. Yeah. And that yeah, is utter, utterly unsurprising. And, and back to Jeff Charles's astute international analysis, uh, I don't this is not by happenstance um, by any means. And its reverberations, I think, will be domestic in the same way that Russia utilized social media to inflame tensions among American citizens prior to Donald Trump's election. I think similarly, 
This present conflict, though international, uh, reveals a major cleavage in the Democratic Party. Uh, I find it hard to believe that many staunch Jewish voters who have supported the Democratic Party will not look askance at some of its current membership that are uh, making statements that are both pro-Palestinian, but occasionally seem to verge into being um, pro-attack or contextualizing the attack in a strange in a strange kind of way. Uh, and whatever I think about that, the merits of that, there will be reactions to the president's decision to uh, support Israel in the opposite direction for the reasons that you know launched this discussion. So I do see all of this playing um, a role back home. And I do think that our adversaries intend to exploit it into next year uh, to, again, create a destabilizing Trump presidency. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So I was trying to think how to label this subject, and I thought it was basically, put down your calamari, the Chinese are watching. (laughs) Um, So I do not tend to love long form articles. I have to say, I either prefer to read a short article or a book, but I want to recommend to everyone. Point of order. Yeah, every please. article you circulate with us is minimum. That's what I was thinking. Every, <laughs> every, every article you tell you somebody will believe it. Come on those, now. Those, those feel long form to y'all? Okay, I know my crowd now. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> you, no, what no. you think the New Yorker on the Atlantic is the is the the brief version? No, no. I'm saying these these were long, right? So this is a New Yorker piece called "The Crimes Behind the Seafood You Eat," um, and I'll just quickly summarize it for the audience. But in in essence, the Chinese. Uh, have a global seafood fleet <laughs> that feed they about one third of the world's fish goes into China, but then they're posted all around the world. And I think it said in 2017, the article actually is framed around an individual from uh, Indonesia who's um, lured into uh, serving on a Chinese fishing boat, believing that he's going off for two weeks or two months and is actually at sea for two years because now we have the technology to run these ships for that long offshores. Um, But then it gets into the details of the Chinese fishing industry, its connection to the military and their global strategy. And one is just a really well done piece and and infinitely moving. But it was one of those pieces that I read that made me think, what the hell are we doing? (laughs) Like, What are we talking about in the United States? So on the one hand, there was just the kind of ethical question 
of our sourcing. And the basic argument of the article is every piece of calamari you eat is tainted by slave labor employed by the Chinese. So in case you didn't know, next time you go to your Applebee's and that's the appetizer you want, just remember the source and let's you know work your way back from there. Which to me signaled, as I always believe, there are no good things. I love calamari, but there just are no good things. But but the more general point I wanted to bring to you all, like this in-depth reporting, it captured what a global adversary is up to. And if you followed some of the links, there was a piece of Robert Gates's in um, Foreign Affairs that was talking about the role that China and Russia are playing in our current geopolitical moment. Um, But it just made me think, goodness, we as Americans are unserious. Like we can't elect a Speaker of the House. That happened today. He's probably the worst human being imaginable from my perspective. He's one of Leonard Leo's acolytes. We could talk about that on another on another debate. But I was just like, we just aren't serious. Like we don't understand what's happening in the world and how much um, we play a kind of innocent role in propping up foreign foreign adversaries to the United States. And I just was curious what you all thought after reading it, because I just thought, one, it's a, it's a good read for anybody who's just enjoying it. But it just was sobering to me. It really is. I mean, you know, I, I woke up this morning and I'm like, OK, today's going to be a good day. I'm feeling good. And then I read that article that Rakeem <laughs> sent and I, it, was, it was depressing, but it was important and it does speak to your point, Rakim. We are not serious people. Like we're more concerned with who's owning who on social media, who said what about whoever. Uh, they can't even elect a speaker, which, by the way, that doesn't really bother me for obvious reasons. But still, I mean, we're, we're not we're not serious people. I mean, it's been, you know, I, I, there was so many layers to this story. I mean, you brought out the fact that our international adversary is engaging in this activity using deep sea fishing really as a way to stake its claim to areas of the world that a lot of people wouldn't like. But there's also even the human aspect. I mean, this was a story of slavery, of human trafficking that has a lot of parallels to how human trafficking uh, for forced labor happens here in the United States. I mean, these people get lured in with promises. You're going to make a lot of money. You're going to be back home in, in, in eight months. And then they sign on to it. They get the documents taken away. They're paid a pittance. And it's just a whole bait and switch, but it involves slavery. And since it happens in uh, uh, contested waters, they can treat these people however they want. And I just found my heart breaking when I read these stories and I was telling my girlfriend about it and she couldn't believe it either. And it's just what are we doing? Because I know if I went, if I go on social media and share that, there will be some people who are interested, but not nearly as inter- interested if I talk about what AOC said about somebody else because she's so dumb. And, you know, it's just like it, we, we were so concerned about being entertained with our politics and with our, our our culture that there's this stuff going on and we could we are actively contributing to it and we have no idea. And it's just it, it is it is a little depressing. A hundred percent on the wanting to be entertained part, because I feel like that's all politics is at this point. It's just a big show where we go to see who has the latest outfits, who gets the best zinger at their congressional hearing. Like that's really all they care about now Mm. instead of actually resolving issues like this or at least investigating issues like this. Do y'all remember when they would do those investigations and it would be on like real stuff? Mm. Like, let's take let's go back. 
let's go back a few years, 10 years where before they were the Taylor in, Swift Ticketmaster before the Taylor, yeah. even I'll even give them the Ticketmaster debate. That one was a good one, but <laughs> they used to use these hearings to talk about real issues and try to get to the bottom of things, bringing in different CEOs, trying to do consumer protections with the banks or something. There used to be a point to all this congressional stuff. And now we have all of these issues that I feel like just continue to deepen. And instead of focusing on that, we're like you say, trying to elect a speaker or we're having hearings about should we have impeached Donald Trump two years ago? It's like, who cares now? Like, what are we even talking about this for? Like, does it matter? So we spend yeah, way too much of our time just trying to have a moment. And I feel like especially working with some of these candidates. I hope they're not listening to me. A lot of people run because they want to have a moment because their egos are so big and they just want to get attention and they want to see themselves with that little plaque in front of their name and they want the camera to come over to them. Like that's what it's all about for a lot of people. And I feel like we are just living in the society where those type of people got elected and then showed up to work. And now we're seeing years of that where the heart for the people is missing in a lot of these politicians and most of them are just here for to be a celebrity. The big storyline in the last say three weeks has been the Kansas city chiefs dating, <laughs> right? Dating a superstar in music, right. right? That's the, that's the thing that everybody cares about. Meanwhile, we got China who's been aggressively pursuing um, a, policy of territorial expansion in the South China Sea for a decade, building artificial islands, calling it their own territory, populating it with all kinds of defensive weaponry, um, building a Navy that is bigger than ours. You know, they're, um, you know, they're 350 ships. We're declining, you know, below 300. That's going to get to be its worst in about two years when China, interestingly, has thought to themselves, you know, hey, maybe that's the time we want to look at Taiwan. So mm-hmm. we are going to be at our lowest point, naval capacity wise. We have backlogs on um, repair facilities. We have not invested in shipyards. We have major problems across the board in naval capability right now. We're still ahead, but, you know, the margin is not big. Uh, meanwhile, the you know, the Chinese have been investing in shipyards, shipbuilding. They've been putting out ship after ship after ship. Uh, they have passed us and they will continue to surpass us in this regard. And oh, by the way, in case you were not uh, too worried about the 350 ship Navy, they've got somewhere between 3000 and 7000 projected force surveillance gathering maritime squid harvesting vessels right. all over the world that are using slave labor and human trafficking in order to feed us our calamari at Olive Garden. And, oh, by the way, that's a part of their force projection and surveillance gathering and just by presence control of the maritime operations strategy. You're listening yet. Yes. You know, yeah, and, right. and, the, and the answer is, mm. I, don't, I can't do anything no. about that. What's that got to do with me? I don't understand. You, you Are you telling me not to eat calamari? What's my right. takeaway from this? Right. You know, the the. And, and and what's that going to get? That's going to get maybe a cycle on the news, right? If this story even makes it on the nightly news, it's going to be one story. And then, you know, the next night we're going to be back to giving the American people what we think they want, which is silly, lurid, ridiculous, uh, emotional stuff. Yeah. I, I'm with you. It's, we're fundamentally unserious. And then when candidates show up who are serious, you know, I feel like this is a... You know, this is the kind of thing like Marco Rubio would have brought up on the debate stage. Did you guys know we've got 6,000 Chinese vessels out harvesting squid with human trafficking and you're supporting it by by buying calamari? And this is allowing them to dominate the world maritime trade and depopulate the ocean of the uh, of the squid population. And then somebody, you know, Donald Trump would be like, 
Shut up, Lamar Cook. <laughs> and everybody <laughs> applaud. Yeah, you tell him, right. man. <laughs> yeah, I well, I mean, everything you all say is true. So maybe we're just commiserating together. Um, <laughs> but it it really did feel. Um, I mean, it was so sobering. I thought just to appreciate for a moment. There was another piece. Maybe I said this earlier that in 2017. The Chinese government basically, I mean, a repressive government, dictatorial government, but in any case, felt the need to pass a law. That's always fascinating. <laughs> felt the need to pass a law saying essentially drafting all of its citizens into its surveillance project. And when you add it now, not everybody, of course, is going to participate in Chinese surveillance. It's not like a red scare. But the point is, these people on these ships are acting as surveyors of the globe for the Chinese Communist Party um, with to your point, Andrew, and your point, Jeff, and your point, Amani, the goal of a securing global dominance. And we look back at our elected officials and it's like, I kind of, I, I would love to know Ian Urbina. I'm going to just shout him out because this was such great work, the Outlaw Oceans Project. I'm curious how many elected officials have contacted him just to say, one, great job, great national service for sitting here traveling around the globe both great national service and great humanitarian service. Because again, as folks said, you should read the human element of this, which is just horrific of these people being um, fooled into serving on these ships and then dying of easily curable illnesses if they would just be brought to shore. But yeah, how many people, how many of our elected officials have contacted you to say, okay, help me understand what we can do about this. Help me understand um, where the, you know, the, pinch points might be for curing some of this or at least intervening in some substantial way. Uh, and I'm sad to sad to say, I don't believe that many have. Um, and that's that's a great tragedy because this is obviously a threat to humanity, period. <laughs> Just human beings trying to live their ordinary lives, trying to put pieces together is a threat to our own national security in the long term. And it just felt like a moment from that. I'm I'm not so learned that I've read the book, so I'm just citing it. I'm gonna just throw that out there, right? But I've read a little bit of the Gathering Storm, and you read those early chapters from Winston Churchill, and you're just like, it just feels eerily similar that you can have a people who have become so placid, so self-satisfied, so self-absorbed that they don't appreciate the threats that are growing all around them, even though they are obvious. Yeah. Have y'all seen that meme of the guy just sitting in the chair and the house is on fire? And he's like, this is fine. Everything is fine. Like, <laughs> that's where we are right now. It's like, what do you mean? Disney Plus is raising rates. Come on. Right. right. God <laughs> forbid I should have to pay for Netflix. Right. Exactly. That's the that's the uh, the, the big workup of the day. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's disturbing. And it's like, I don't know how to solve that problem. Like, how do we get Americans to wake up to this stuff to actually consider it important? Like, I mean, it. You, I mean, the thing is, the reason why our politicians don't talk about this stuff is because it's not sexy enough. It's not going to get headlines and it just but then how much of that is our fault? Because we they do what we reward them for doing. Right. Mm -hmm. right. And to me, it's like, you know, it, it just the level of ignorance it is killing us and it's killing other people. Like, I mean, I think if you ask the average person if, if they if they would be bothered by the fact that they're supporting slavery by eating calamari in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. And you told the stories, they would say, okay, yeah, that that's not cool. But then it goes back to, I can't remember who said it, but it's like, that's so far away. Like, what do you do about it? Well, if there's enough of us who won't buy it and we're America, so we have tons of influence over the globe. Mm -hmm. If we just say, yeah, we're, we're not going to eat that. We're not going to buy that. Then I, I guarantee you something would change. All right. Can I, uh, can I, can I say the completely unacceptable thing here? Yes. Uh, but here goes. Welcome, you ready? 
this is the problem with democracy. <laughs> so what, what's the what's the long standing like, you know, 3000 year argument against democracy is that um, the average person isn't capable of handling that kind of responsibility on a consistent basis. And over time, what you get is uh, they elect worse and worse people who do worse and worse things and promise more ridiculous things. They create problems. And eventually we elect the dictator who promises to solve it all. And they wind up taking away all of our freedom. And we've seen this cycle over and over and over and over again. Right. This is not a new thing. It's weirdly not yet happened in America. Um, some would say it has, but you know, it's a debate for a different day. Okay. Um, but you know, the basic problem is that the average person is just trying to survive. You know, they're trying to raise their kids. They're trying to not lose their marriage. They're trying to pay the bills, keep their house, keep their job, you know, find a little bit of fun on the weekend, maybe out on the boat, drinking some beer, fishing, whatever. Uh, and then along comes Rakeem with his, you know, 400 page novella on the evils <laughs> of, uh, of a squid fishing from the Chinese Imperial Navy. And it's too much. You know, it's too much. On the other hand, I know you don't mean this for Keem, but, you know, imagine a little bit more authoritarian state. One, <laughs> one where the, the leaders know what's important. The leaders deal with the important stuff and the people, eh, we're not too worried about them. This is, I think this is the, I'm not making it, but this is the argument that a Putin makes. This is the argument that a Xi makes is, you know, the authoritarian state can actually handle the stresses and challenges of the modern world and be more effective, your silly democracy, it, you're getting the, you know, Travis Kelsey and uh, Taylor Swift. That's what you get because that's what democracy produces. <laughs> Not Taylor Swift being the pillar of democracy. Y'all. Where have we gone as a nation? <laughs> yeah, I I mean, I know I see where you're where you're going. And I do think that's that is a threat. But democracies have proven themselves capable of addressing international threats and foreign adversaries. So I'm not sure we're that far gone. But I would certainly say that our present elected officials do not seem to be sounding the alarm about things that are important and instead have their focus elsewhere. So in the context of our representative democracy, sure, okay, maybe the people at large are too busy, right? I'm working multiple jobs. You know, if that's the noble version or I'm watching too too many Netflix specials or series, that's the ignoble version, whatever, right? That's the average person. Um, then you got folks who are invested, but don't know quite know what to do with it. But theoretically, we elect all these people who are supposed to share some sense of responsibility for a national outcome. Right. Jeff is laughing. There's a reason why I'm you're try- laughing while I'm you're saying that, right? Not to laugh. Yeah. Even, but it, even but you can't saying it with a fully straight face. Right. But it's <laughs> yeah, it's truly, truly absurd. And as I don't know, I, I, it was one of it's the first time in a long time I read something that I thought, wow. There's somebody out there who is just a regular citizen and deeply committed to making sense of some of the harder things in the world. And here it is. They have served it up to us. And in a week's time outside of outside of the debate, maybe two weeks because we've talked about it, uh, people will have forgotten and pay very little attention to it. And I think that's a tragedy. And, and it took them four years to do it. From, Talk from what about I read. it. Like, four years. Oh, it's four an years. amazing piece. Absolutely. Like I don't, I don't know if I would spend four years on something that I know is going to be for, forgotten. I mean, I hope it's not forgotten. I hope, I hope we're wrong about this. I'm, I'm, I hope that maybe it catches on a little bit more than we think it will. But yeah, it, that, that's a lot of work. He and he did excellent work. I would encourage everybody 
to read that article. It was in the New Yorker, right? Mm-hmm. Tell them the name and the uh, and the author, just in case they want to look it up, because it was it was, it was it was a fantastic article. Yeah, Ian Urbino. Uh, it's the crimes behind the seafood you eat, and it's in the New Yorker. He's a reporter at large for Outlaw Oceans Project, and it's very short. It's a five minute read. <laughs> no, it's it's probably an hour long read, but it's it's an, it's an easy read, I think. Okay, picture this: it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So in my state of Florida... There's a bill filed again this year, as the previous year, as the previous year, as the previous year, <laughs> for Florida to join the National Popular Vote Compact. The National Popular Vote Compact, in case you're not familiar, is this um, completely subversive workaround to the Electoral College. <laughs> it's, it's brilliant in its deviousness, but the simple idea is that uh, when we have presidents get selected, It should not be by this crazy Byzantine um, anachronistic system called the Electoral College. You have presidents that get elected who do not have even a plurality of the vote because the person who had the plurality of the vote got fewer Electoral College votes, uh, let alone getting a straight out majority. And that's unjust, unfair. It's a violation of the principle of one person, one vote. You know, there's a lot of arguments that get made in this regard. So the uh, National Popular Vote Compact is the idea that if you can get 270 Electoral College votes worth of states who all pass a law in their state that not their own state's winner, but the winner of the national popular vote will get all of their Electoral College votes. They can work around the Electoral College system and put the winner of the national popular vote total in the Oval Office. That's the theory. Uh, and it's frighteningly close to being able to happen. I think they're they're over 200 that they've got over 200 votes in this thing. So, you know, um, that's that's pretty darn close, frankly, for, you know, 270 being enough to do it. So I just wanted to, you know, take a moment, step back and talk about the underlying structure of our governmental system and whether it makes more sense to have not necessarily this way of doing a national popular vote, but whether it makes more sense to have the national popular vote be the determining factor for president or the electoral college as we currently have it now. And I, even my local university had a big debate on this uh, the other week. So I wanted to talk about it. Um, I'm a defender of the electoral college. I believe in it. I love it. I admire it. It's fabulous though. It is not without flaw or criticism. (laughs) Can you say why? Just, just what's your defense of the, <laughs> oh, of the okay. so, so the, I'll give you the, I'll give you the short version. The, the, short argument, version yeah, yeah. the best argument, in my opinion, against the Electoral College is the idea that a person's vote in, say, Wyoming counts about four times as much as a person's vote in Florida when it comes to the president. Because Wyoming gets three electoral votes, one for their congressman and one, two for their senators. Uh, whereas Florida gets, I forget what we're up to now, 24, 25, something like that. Um, and but because they really shouldn't have two senators and they should probably not even have a congressman to begin with, they get a disproportionately greater say in who becomes president. So the one person, one vote concept is is sort of undermined. And the argument that, you know, 40, 45 states 
your vote doesn't really matter because your state's already going one way or the other. So it's really a small portion of swing states. And uh, the, it, it, that really shouldn't be just those people who count. If it were a national popular vote, everybody would get, you know, get their, get their say. Uh, my response is we don't elect the president by people. We elect the president by state. The states select the president. It has always been this way. It has only ever been this way. And so the idea that it is the Rhode Islander or the Wyomingan who counts when really it's it's Rhode Island and Wyoming and Florida that count. We are a United States of America, not a people of America. And so there's no provision for electing the president by this mechanism whatsoever. They have other arguments, but that's kind of the gist of it. We should elect them by state, not by people. I am pro people. Amen. And, <laughs> and that's how I feel I'm not like sure like be. the way this is being framed, but pro, all right. Pro people. Yes. yes. Pro people. In the name of Jesus, okay? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, where's the organ music? <laughs> the choir. But no, I think, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but my argument for getting rid of the Electoral College is it won't matter how many people are in Wyoming or whatever, and we can still take their collective vote. We can still take their collective vote and say, overwhelmingly, Wyoming supported such and such for president. However, the country has decided it's whoever. So I feel like you can still have two, you know, you still have both parts of the system and we'll just go by majority. And I'm sure we could come up with a mechanism in which we know, like the numbers broken down by state, who, which state chose what. But at the end of the day, we're still going to go with who got the most votes. I think we don't have to get rid of state by state. But at the same time, ultimately, the deciding factor is who got the most votes. I also think if people had to earn votes more. Politics might be a little better. Politics might be a little better if they had to win over the Wyoming or the, you know, the Colorado or whatever. So I don't know. So, yeah, the I argument have, that they've got to go to every state and, and you know, campaign everywhere because every vote counts the same. Certainly an argument in favor of the popular vote versus the Electoral College. I, I understand. appreciate that. I do. Yeah, I've got so many arguments against this, Andrew. It's hard to know where to start, but I will start just in a timely fashion. So one argument for the Electoral College was that it was supposed to prevent the democracy from turning into a tyranny because you would choose some enlightened people, the electors who would go off to Washington and cast their votes and say, like, though the population has said this, this is not the time we know better. And yet we ended up with Donald Trump, which I think should be case. And actually that comported with the national vote. Right. So like or no, it didn't actually. But, you know, anyway, yeah, Hillary, Hillary had, Hillary, had, Hillary had the majority. Right? right. So so I think the electors in one case, like have, like the time we needed them, actually, they didn't show up. <laughs> They like dutifully marched off and made this decision to put this um, autocrat in place who totally eroded various pieces of the government, et cetera. So I think in the one test case you have of the use of the Electoral College, it failed. But beyond that, the founders didn't anticipate that you would have political parties. So they thought, okay, you're going to have an Electoral College where legitimately the great men of the states will likely be the people sent off to D.C. to cast their ballots and they will act in the national interest. That doesn't happen because the parties choose. And so it usually serves the function of reifying whatever happened in that particular state, which was also not the intent that, you know, Wyoming back to that or Tennessee or West Virginia, that their fine people would make a decision about who would be president (laughs) and the electors would just go along with it. 
But even more than that, I think because the political parties um, have taken over the system, uh, we've lost what I think the enlightened electors would have anticipated, which is if, in fact, there becomes a divergence between the popular vote and the electoral college with some regularity, we are threatening the entire system because the people believe themselves to be voting not for us, but for the president. And gradually they will seek to erode all the other protections in democracy against pure democracy over time because we have this major isolated incident where the one figure who is supposed to represent the population as a whole is actually not popularly elected. And like they'll get hip to it and figure something out. So those are my three different critiques. It didn't save us the one time we really needed it. The political parties have totally taken over the system in a way that wasn't anticipated. And third, if we really had enlightened electors, they would cast their ballots consistent with the national popular vote more often than not, because they realize that otherwise they threaten all the other checks and balances in the system. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm, I'm going to screw this whole conversation up before <laughs> Jeff gets to weigh in, because I'm going to give you my uh, not my halfway view, but I'm going to give you my, my full view. OK, you ready? Mm-hmm. We. Uh, Andrew should not be voting for president. Rakeem should not be voting for president. Jeff and Amani should not be voting for president. The original design of the state sending their best people to this group gathering where they select an administrator for the country, not a legislator, not a great speaker, but an administrator for the country who's going to be president is a brilliant plan. Is a wonderful somebody that Congress can work with, somebody that they respect, that they have relationships with, somebody who can not be the populist, but somebody who can actually do the job of president. I think one of the worst things that ever happened was we started giving every ordinary person the ability to vote for <laughs> president because who can possibly know? Andrew against against extended suffrage. That's exactly right. I want to vote Andrew for my congressman. I want the governor to pick the senators and uh, I want the president to be picked by the Electoral College selected by the legislative delegation in Tallahassee or in uh, Lincoln or in Denver. You know, I, that's that's what I want, because that makes sense to me. Um, that would be the, that's but, the but that's exactly version. what I'm saying. But that's what I'm suggesting, Andrew, that the problem with your vision is that unless you have a true an enlightened group, so to speak, that recognizes that the population believes it has the right to elect these people and diverges from that regularly, the whole system can't hold together because that's why every democracy fails. Right. The people eventually overwhelm the rest of the system, at least in you know classical terms, overwhelm the rest of the system because they're like, wait a minute, I'm in charge. You're not in charge. And the smart people say, yes. You are in charge. The dumb people say, no, we're in charge. Didn't you look at the constitutional architecture? It says that I get to make the vote and you don't get to make the vote. Y'all just drove me even further into anarchy. I mean, that that just like, <laughs> like, like, like what you guys just laid out just sounds terrifying to me. Some enlightened individuals making these decisions about who leads us. But, uh, but seriously, I actually used to be in your camp, Andrew, as far as the Electoral College. But I started doing more research and I actually talked to some of the people who are part of the national popular vote movement. And I. Uh, I gotta say, their their arguments were very, very hard to beat. Um, I, so I ended up leaning more that way, and th- th- there's a few reasons why. But I think when we're choosing an, an administrator, a lot of people, a lot of the problems that they point out are, well, I mean, if you do a national popular vote, then maybe only a few states will decide with the president who the president is. Well, that that's what that's what's happening right now, though, <laughs> under the Electoral College. A few states exactly. decide who the president's going to be. And, and here's my thing. 
I like the idea that our votes should actually matter. (laughs) I think they should matter. If you are a Republican in California, there's no reason to show up at the polls because you know that state's going to go for the Democrat. But if a presidential candidate has to go to different parts of California, like all that area between Los Angeles all the way up to San Francisco, that might as well be Texas. <laughs> so, I mean, there are a lot of <laughs> conservative Republicans there. They don't make up the majority of the population. But if the presidential candidate has to actually work to mm-hmm. win their votes, then, then that. I think that's a that's a net positive. I mean, it's not a perfect system, but yeah, I, I think uh, potentially any uh, presidential candidate should have to campaign in all 50 states. I know they may not travel to all 50 states consistently, but you have people there who are trying to get out the vote. I mean, it also creates a situation where, as a lot of Republicans complain about, well, there's some people on the West Coast and the East Coast who get the most number of electoral votes. Well, guess what? Any president is going to have to win over flyover country now, too, because if they can get at least a good chunk of the votes in California, if if, if, even without getting all of them, maybe a few in New York, but they get a lot of the Mideast. Well, guess what? That person's going to be the president. And even when they broke down the numbers, it actually does work out that way. I mean, flyover country, if you combine it, is just the population is just a little bit less than what you have on on the the different coasts. But they just don't have as as many electoral votes. So I like the idea that, that a president should actually have to earn the votes of the people. So let me follow this through sort of a step past where you want to be which is let's start with the premise that uh, a completely unconstitutional mechanism of having a national vote one person at a time and adding up that total is how we're going to pick the national administrator. We call him an executive, but you know, it's to administer the government, right? Um, If that's the basis of sovereignty for the president or, or of political authority for the president, why do we have a Senate? Why do we have a Senate in which every state gets two senators, regardless of the size of the Senate, that is also a disenfranchisement or a disproportionate political power, right? There's no reason that your small state should have two in California and Texas and Florida should only have two. So is the next step that we what? We go to a system like the House of Representatives in the Senate. We have two relatively identical bicameral uh, bodies. Do we then chip away at the significance of the states themselves? Because why would we have the vagaries of weird geographical history and the oddities of this river or, you know, that war or whatever separate these states? Those make no sense either. You, you're starting to get to a system that every step of the way looks more like the pure democracy, even if it's still representative, but the pure democracy that the founders were terrified of. Instead, we have a system that is. Uh, as Kennedy called it, a sort of solar system of constellations all built around each other that intricately connect and balance and check each other. I love that system because that system has worked really well, like no other in the history of the planet. So I, I want think the we can to defend. be different from the Senate. I want the Senate to be different from the president. I want the, 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 the Supreme Court to be different from either of those because these different kinds of power create hindrances and hamper the ability of the mob essentially to run things because they're thwarted over and over and over again. And I want the government to thwart it's, people. It's, over it's, and over it's and not over the, it's not the mob. I, so I, I can defend, I never do, but I will for you defend the Senate and nevertheless defend the idea of the national popular vote. If sovereignty emanates from the people, that's the conflict that I'm drawing with the electoral college, which is sovereignty yeah, emanating you. from the people, right? Should land at the president, but the people to take Jeff's analogy, 
the Republican and the Democrat in Rhode Island who reside in Rhode Island both want two senators. They actually don't have a problem with the idea that their sovereignty resides in two individuals. They actually can locate where their sovereignty is. And so that's not inconsistent with the argument. You can have a Senate which somehow divides power and there are all the problems with the Senate, right? Rhode Island, Rhode Islanders are happy with it, but Californians aren't. But as my, I was going to say what my grandmother said, tough. I'll just leave it at that tough. So, <laughs> um, blank. right. Zero to blank. Right. So, um, yes, the California doesn't get to tell the Rhode Islander, like, no, you don't get two because, yeah, that was part of the initial deal. The only way that you got them into the system was to say, okay, we'll give you two because that will serve to balance your interests against um, the popular interests at large. But they still know where their sovereignty resides. And so I don't know that you have to go as far as getting rid of the Senate. But again, to your to my earlier point, part of the reason that the people rose up (laughs) against the governor selecting or the legislatures of the states selecting the senators is because they couldn't locate their sovereignty. If it had been the case that the that the uh, individual sorry, the way that the states did it was to say that the state legislatures would vote among themselves to figure out, and some did and some didn't, to figure out who the person would be rather than various background deals, backroom deals, people could locate their sovereignty. I elect the state legislature, state assembly person, state senator. They then have a vote. Those votes end up channeling up to one person who now is our elected representative. It just didn't go directly through me. Anytime you sever those links, you promote that leveling effect that James Madison talked about, where the population as a whole is going to revolt against the sense, back to Jeff's point, that other people are making these decisions for them when they want to see the expression of their free will and their sovereignty um, sort of channeled in different directions. They can deal with different channels. That has to be protected. Ultimately, they will try to erode that, but they can deal with different channels. What they can't deal with is the idea that it doesn't channel somewhere, <laughs> that there's just this person out there. And we hear no, so many people point. that choose sorry, not to vote for president because they Americans know that it doesn't count. They say that all the time. Like historically, our voter turnout for presidential elections in certain areas just gets lower and lower and lower and lower because the national consensus is, I mean, I can vote for president, but they already decided who they want anyway. So what does my vote really matter? My vote don't even matter. So we want the idea of democracy to hold some sort of truth to it. We got to at least let like Rakeem is saying, great point, Rakeem. Let them feel like it matters <laughs> so that feel. we can do the other stuff. Keep the See, Amani is clearly, she's the communications expert. Whatever I said, sum it up that way. Let them feel like it matters. Let them feel Andrew. like it matters. Let them feel like because it matters. Exactly. You can keep the Supreme Court, keep Congress, keep everything like you're saying. Those are people that we are electing to do very specific things, to go legislate and write laws and all of that. Like you're saying, they can wrap their mind around that. But you're telling me I can't even choose the president? No. <laughs> well, and it's also worth mentioning, too, that specifically with the National Popular Vote Compact, you're not actually doing away with the Electoral College. You're getting around it, but you're not getting rid of it. And one of the things that kind of sold me on it is that, you know, if somehow this doesn't work out, these states can easily pull out of that compact and then it goes back to the way it was before. So you're not actually eliminating the Electoral College. The states are actually still voting for president, but they've just made up their minds to vote for the one that gets the most votes. So it's that that's a little uh that's a little that's a little detail there that's also important to mention. Yeah, a weird weird thing I will say this in favor of the National Popular Vote Compact concept is um though I suspect it might be unconstitutional and though it is certainly crafty and devious. Uh, there is something about it that is weirdly honoring of the original principle that the states 
would be the mm-hmm. ones to select the electors, right? Because in this case, the state is deciding, you know what? Don't care what our people think. I care what all the people think. And that's how we're going to pick our electors. And there's something sort of weirdly honoring uh, about that way of doing it. Uh, on the other hand, uh, sort of to take Rakeem's point about identifying the flow of your political authority, there's going to be nothing more frustrating to people in states where the candidate that wins their state and should therefore take all under normal circumstances of the electors of that state doesn't get any of those votes because they don't win the national popular vote. That is a direct thwarting of the sovereignty flow, if you will, or the authority mm-hmm. flow of the people in that state. And and sort of just one last thing. You remember what happens when we don't get a president on the first round of I mean, when we when we can't get a president through the Electoral College, what happens? It goes into the House. What happens in the House of Representatives? They vote as states. Each state gets one vote and the candidate has to win a majority of the one vote at a time states. And so the concept of states picking the president is reinforced on the back end as the way we pick and then not even weighted by population. California and Wyoming, Texas and Rhode Island each get one vote for picking president if it ever does go into the House of Representatives. I was just going to, for for the listeners, there's a great resource on what it was like to elect senators before direct democracy. I think it's called Electing the Senate, uh, Electing the Senate, yeah, at brown.edu, where they go through a bunch of the historical resources so that you can weigh out for yourself whether or not Andrew's anti-democratic <laughs> commitments are best for the democracy as a whole. Hey, 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 let's, can, we, can we agree about this? Jeff aside, as an asterisk in this conversation, <laughs> the people who want the national popular vote are Democrats, the people who want the Electoral College are Republicans, not necessarily in part because of, but certainly the history is that, you know, the House and the Senate have gone more often to the Democrats and the president has gone more often to Republicans in part because of the process, the way this process works, which creates tension, creates gridlock, makes inefficient government. It should be something that Jeff loves, because when the government can't get anything done, they can't get anything bad done either. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited about. <laughs>